Welcome to the Real Time Roots Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Diel, and this is my co-host, Sarah. Hello, everyone. At Joybully, we help you grow your own food and remedies so that you can create health and wellness for your family naturally. In this episode, we're answering your questions about gardening, food preservation, and all those things. Let's get started. Chris, starting with the topic of gardening, what can be done if you have a mid-season garden failure? Wow, that's a great topic. We have heard about people having mid-season garden failures over and over again this year. It's been a crazy, crazy weather situation with a really cold, wet spring, not much warmth, and then burning heat all throughout North America and Europe. And it's been a great, a great challenge for gardeners, especially new gardeners that don't know there can be success. I had my own challenges too with cabbage butterflies in my garden. And what I did was I ripped it all out. And I started over with plants that can be harvested in 30 to 60 days, because for me, that's how much of a growing season I had left. So the first thing you would do is look at how much growing season you have left. And then if you think the plants that you're failing with aren't going to produce food, then the best thing to do is to count your losses, take them out and use that ground, give it a little fertilizer, some compost, and plant something that can be harvested in just 30 to 60 days. Now, those are things like lettuce and um, some quick-growing carrots, quick-growing beets, some green onions, and what else, Sarah? Well, there's a lot of like bok choy, tatsoi, the various Asian greens. You don't want to go with a large size radish, but small radishes like French breakfast or Easter basket radishes would be great options. On the subject of quick-growing carrots, the small fingerling carrots or the really small round Parisian carrots, sometimes referred to as Thumbelina carrots, are all fast-growing carrots. And then, of course, definitely go in for the lettuce because as it's cooling down into autumn, you won't have the lettuce bolting. And even if it gets a slight hint of frost, that'll just sweeten it up. Same with kale. And most of the brassicas that are leafy, like kale, chard, Um, mustard greens, if they get a little bit of frost, they'll just sweeten up and you'll wonder why you ever ate them in the spring. That's, That's great advice, Sarah. The other thing that I would say is to take an inventory about why you think it failed. If it was pests, what can you do to stop the pests for next year? Um, Could you plant some flowers that are going to attract the predatory insects to deal with those pests? Even that might be not be a hundred percent, but other things you can do is put a row cover over it so that the pests can't access your crops and consider what you can do for next year to improve. Every year of gardening is There are successes and there are failures that we can learn from. The important thing is not to give up. So we've been talking about insects and insect pests, Sarah. What can be done about insect pests if you've got an infestation? Well, number one, you can trap them or handpick them. Uh, We've had some issues with Japanese beetles, Uh, tomato hornworms, and even the cabbage butterfly worms. And all of those are ones that you can semi-track down and handpick. And for handpicking, you just, if you feel squeamish, put on a pair of gloves first. 
and have a bucket with soapy water and you just go hunting the pests and dropping it into your bucket of soapy water. You can also do that with slugs if you need to. And then the other option would be companion planting. To discourage cabbage butterfly moths, you can plant dill and maybe some of the other strongly scented annual herbs in with your brassicas. Not just next to them, but actually sow the dill seed alongside your kale seed so that you have the plants in the same rows. The smell of the dill will confuse the cabbage butterfly moth and it will have a harder time finding your brassica plants. Other plants that are great for companion planting include marigolds. They repel root nematodes if you have that as a challenge. And then you can also do crop rotation, planting more diversity into your garden. If you plant crops in the same spot year after year, you will get soil-borne pests that perpetuate and make it more difficult to grow that specific crop in the next year. That's especially true with carrot rust fly, since the larval stage is the carrot root maggot. So you need to move your carrots or your parsley or your other carrot family plants to different areas of your garden every couple of years. You may want to keep parsley and let it go to seed. It is a biannual if you want to have volunteer parsley growing. But other than that, I recommend moving your carrots, moving your beets, and generally planning a rotation where you don't plant root crops in the same area two years in a row. When you're talking about trapping or handpicking, sometimes it's hard to see the egg stage or the early larva stage. And something that can help is to take a lint roller brush or a strip of duct tape turned backwards over your hand and just use it on the underside of the leaves of the plant to stick the the eggs or the very small larva, and that can help you get them. And another tip is if you're dealing with something like tomato hornworm, they glow in the dark in a black light. So if you take a black light flashlight where you've got your tomatoes after dark, those worms are going to be shiny and bright, and it's going to be easy to pick them off. Wear gloves, have a soapy bucket of water, and just pick them off. And if you've got chickens, chickens love them. And then there's also leaving your garden fallow for a year. It interrupts the pest life cycle because it removes their food source. So if there's a really strong infestation of something like squash bugs, Japanese beetles, or anything that overwinters in the soil, you may want to leave the garden fallow for a year or just plant herbs for that year or plants that are not affected by the pests that are currently in your region. Uh, one other thing about the trapping is that sometimes you don't need the traps. What you need to do is strengthen the plant because a lot of pests will only target a weak plant. I have a grapevine that has a lot of challenges with uh, white flies, and it starts losing its leaves about halfway through the summer because of the white flies, because it's in a shaded area under a black walnut tree. And what I did last year was simply mulch it and fertilize it. And it has had zero white fly challenges this year because its roots got what it needed, and it's now a stronger plant. So the reason that works is because when plants are given what they need, they actually develop more sugars in their cells and the insect pests can't digest that sugar and so they leave those plants alone. So if you give your plants more space, give them good fertility, you will have less of a challenge with garden pests. Which is another reason that white fly infestations can run rampant in something like a greenhouse or in potted plants because the plant's roots are just not getting everything they need from the confined environment. So in, in other words, what you're saying is that when you see a lot of pests, don't just try to get rid of the pests, but also 
see what the plant needs that might improve its chances of survival and helping it to thrive. So, Sarah, if somebody has contaminated hay or contaminated straw that they bought in order to put on their garden as a mulch, I know you have some tips about that. Could you share with our audience the tips that you have for dealing with contaminated hay or contaminated straw? Okay, so to give some background on it, some of our cattle and other animals are being fed hay or bedded on straw that is sprayed with Grazon. And Grazon is unfortunately an herbicide that persists in the hay and the straw. It also persists in the animal manure. So there has been an issue in the past year or so with hay, straw, and even bag composted manure having Grazon residual in it that, of course, when you apply it to your garden, affects your transplants or even sometimes your well-established plants. Now, the most efficient way to remediate the soil is actually to bring in mushrooms, specifically winecap mushrooms. Now, winecap mushrooms are an edible mushroom that will remediate pesticides, herbicides, and organic matter like ammonias out of the soil and out of water. Winecap mushrooms have been used for soil remediation. They've been used as a barrier to clean up runoff from animal pens, and they've also been used as a barrier to clean up runoff from roofs or to clean up rainwater when you're doing your own rainwater collecting. And all you need to do is get a bag of winecap spawn and then add it to your mulch in your garden or add it to your compost pile if you've pulled that mulch off your garden beds. You can add the mushroom mycelium to your compost pile, mix it in, keep it lightly watered and let the mycelium grow throughout your compost pile or water it into your uh, mulch or into your garden bed paths, etc. And let the mycelium grow. And in a year, you will have clean soil and you may also have some delicious tasty mushrooms. Would you want to eat the mushrooms if they've been used to remediate something like Grazon? I would skip any mushrooms that fruit the very first fall after getting the bed established, simply because those are the ones that are most likely to carry the residuals of the chemical in the fruiting body. The next spring, the mycelium will have metabolized the pesticide completely, or herbicide completely, sorry, and those mushrooms the next spring should have absolutely no residual chemicals. They should be perfectly clean, and you can just add more straw or wood chips or whatever else you want to the area to encourage the mushrooms to continue growing and to enable you to go out and pick tomatoes and mushrooms from the same spot and have a delicious dinner. Sounds like a plan. Excellent. If you're just getting started thinking about using herbs to make something so that you can feel better and start to tap into the natural wellness. I've got the perfect course for you. My course, the Inspiring Botanical Drinks Mixers and Elixirs course. In this video course, you'll learn how to make healthy beverages that will help you break away from sodas and sugary drinks or plain boring water. Even if you have a two or three soda a day habit, even if the kids are home and you keep running out of ice and ideas, even if you struggle to get enough fluids in your body because of the heat, even if you are watching your macros, your carbs, or your waistline, 
Even if you have food sensitivities or allergies, and even if the rising price of food and drink has you making tough decisions about where to cut costs. If you are making more food at home and watching your budget, but go to the same bottled beverages day in and day out, this class will inspire you to up your game in the beverage category with healthy and creative options that are also kind to your budget. So have a look at the inspiring botanical drinks, mixers and elixirs class. You'll find the link in the show notes. So let's move on to our next topic. We're going to be talking about food preservation. We've had a number of questions come in about food preservation from previous episodes. So let's have a look. So Chris, we'll start with one of our favorite conversation topics to clarify, and that is what is the rule of three? So the rule of three is used in preparedness to say that you don't want just one thing as your plan for dealing with an emergency, because if that thing fails, then what do you do? So the rule of three says you should have three different ways to deal with essentials, three different ways to do water, three different ways to do food, three different ways to have a emergency backup plan. So the rule of three is essentially your backup plan so that If your first and easiest form of food storage fails, you still have some food storage that is secure for long-term survival, long-term fitness, kind of like in case of fire break glass. Or as I like to call it, have a backup plan for your backup plan. Right. So for instance, a lot of people will say, I've got all my food in my freezer, it's fine. But if the freezer fails, if there's a power outage, then you're in trouble. And a lot of people then will start emptying the freezer and start canning. Well, that's great if you have lots of seals and lots of jars, but that's not a great thing if everyone is trying to do the same thing. So it's good to have some food that's already been canned instead of everything in the freezer. And my favorite way of food preservation for this rule is actually dehydration because you don't have to worry if your dehydrated food storage ends up having the heater turn off and it freezes, it won't break a bunch of jars. And your dehydrated food storage is actually going to be good for several years longer than your canned food storage. That's right. So my personal backup plan to my backup plan is having dried food, then canned food, then frozen food. And then of course, fresh from the farmer's market. Always fresh from the farmer's market. But around here, the farmer's market is only in the summer. Some people are actually blessed to have year-round farmer's markets. You mean like the Shuk in Israel? Yeah. I, I love that time we visited the Shuk in Israel. That was so amazing. I was actually thinking about that this week, feeling like uh, I wish we were back there. So somebody asked Sarah if food storage was hoarding. And we have lived on a farm for decades and you grew up on the farm with us and you know that we put food by in the summer when the harvest was plentiful so that we had enough to go through the winter. So did you consider that we were hoarding when we were putting food by? No, because we always ate what we ended up storing. There's no point in spending five bucks a pound on apples in January and February if you could spend two bucks a pound on apples in September and dehydrate it for the winter. 
Winter food storage has been practiced for centuries. It's how our ancestors handled winter. And our grocery stores really are a fairly new invention. Historically, in winter, you would eat the food that you grew or preserved. And if you didn't grow it or preserve it, you didn't get to eat it. However, recently we've become dependent on others for food and we've also become habituated to having foods out of season, like strawberries in December in the north. Though I will admit that in Israel, strawberry season was January, February. I, I think the other thing about that is that people who are buying food or growing food or buying it at the farmer's market or at the farm stands, they're not putting pressure on the grocery store system for people that are dependent on the grocery store system. So if you are gathering food in season and preserving it, you're not taxing the grocery store system. It's a different supply chain completely. It's just like the restaurant supply chain is different than the domestic food supply chain. So you're not taxing the grocery store by buying at the farmer's market or going to the farm stand or growing your own food. And in that way, not only aren't you taxing it, but you're also kind of relieving the pressure. So if you're in a situation where there's some food shortages or there's rationing, if you have put food by, then you're actually blessing the system so that it can keep going to serve the people that can't do what you do. And one other thing about the farms, if local people don't buy the food, it's just going to go in the compost. We need local people to buy the food from their local farms so that the farms survive, keep producing food for us, and let us preserve food for our winter and enjoy tasty, delicious, nutritious, and absolutely awesome home preserves. Good point. So Chris, if someone has never preserved food before, where should they start? Wow, great question. The first thing I think would be to determine how much space you have to store food. Now, I would say look at the the places where you might not think of food storage, like under the bed or in the bottom of the closet or the tops of the closet, places that might be unusual. Or if you have awkwardly shaped kitchen cupboards, the back portion of those cupboards can work great for food storage. And then once you know how much space you have, then you can determine what you should be storing. So for instance, um, if you have a freezer and it has a two by four footprint, which is eight square feet, then you can actually store half, half a beef cow in that space, which is amazing. It doesn't take up a lot of space and that half a cow can feed a family of four for a year. So that's with freezing. Dehydrating is another really easy to start place because you don't need a lot of equipment. You just need your cutting board, your knife, and some bowls, and then your dehydrator. And the dehydrators, if you don't have a dehydrator now, you can find them at places like uh, secondhand stores, uh, garage sales, and even a brand new one is less than the cost of a freezer. Canning, on the other hand, takes a little more knowledge. Um, You need a lot more equipment. You need jars, you need lids, you need a canner. And we talked about that in the canning episode. So if someone's interested in canning, go have a listen to that episode as well. But once you know how to do it, it's pretty rote and easy to do. And once you have the jars and the canner, you can use those same jars and canner for 20 years or more. I do. I've, I've been using the same canner, the same jars for 40 years of canning food. The only thing I have to replace is the lids. So once you know how to do it and you've done it successfully, it just it's in your, your muscle memory and it's pretty easy. But if you've never done it before, go slow. 
and maybe start by dehydrating some herbs because you can just hang those on the knobs of your kitchen cupboards and they'll be dry in three or four days or less, depending on your heat and humidity. So if someone doesn't have a lot of space, though, where can they store, say, cans or dried food, Sarah? So ideally, food should be stored between 40 and 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, that would be Fahrenheit, I think. Okay, I think that's Fahrenheit. You want to avoid wide temperature fluctuations as those can degrade the food and reduce your food storage times. However, even if you have a less than ideal situation, you can always store dried or canned food under the bed. Just use totes or small flat boxes to make it easier to shift things around. It's a little awkward if you just decide to stick the cans under there without them being in a box as it's really hard to rummage. But if they're in a box, you can pull them out and look at the ones behind a lot easier. Uh, you can put food in an unused closet or a pantry. Or you can, as I mentioned earlier, check the shape of your kitchen cupboards. I have two cupboards in my kitchen that go back an extra three feet at a very awkward angle. So I actually use the back portion of those cupboards for longer term storage. And I use the front portion of the cupboards for food that I want to be able to grab quickly. And then the last thing is that you want to protect your stored food from insects and rodents. So while that's a lot easier with canned goods, a mouse isn't going to chew its way into a glass jar, you will want your dried food to be stored in a rodent and insect proof container. That could be a heavy duty plastic tote. Just don't put it outside in the outside closet. Or you could use uh, tins, boxes, anything that you can put your like mylar bags of dried food in. Even a clean, like a new garbage can can help. Now, some people live where there are rats and the rats will chew through those plastic totes and plastic buckets. So in that case, then you're going to want something metal and even rats might chew through that. So you're going to want to check your storage as well. Um, one thing you don't want to do is store in mylar bags and then have them just sitting out in the open because you'll probably lose them to critters eventually. So Chris, if someone's looking at storing food, about how much food would they need for a year's supply? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I would suggest that if someone is wanting to actually store a year's supply of food, that they start by writing a menu plan. Because yeah, you can download lists from the internet, but those lists are not going to be relevant to a lot of people. They're like survival food types of lists where there's a lot of carbohydrates, a lot of calories, but not necessarily a lot of nutrition. So I would suggest writing a menu plan of everything that your family would eat in two weeks. Now you could just do one week, but then you're repeating meals and it can get boring. Um, I would say two weeks and include everything like salt and pepper and spices. And then once you have that list, just multiply by 26. So if you're using one cup of rice and you're using one cup of rice three out of seven days, then that's like pound and a half of rice. And then you're going to multiply it by 26 to get how much rice you're going to use in a year. Be sure to include meals that you only eat once a month too. So if once a month you have a chicken dinner, make sure that you record that as well. And then that gives you an idea of how much that you need to store for your supply of food. But if your goal is to store just for six months, you only need to multiply by six then. So the first thing would be to make that menu plan for three meals a day plus snacks for two weeks. And then if you're going to store just for three months, just multiply by six. 
And it's really important that you actually record food that you actually eat. There was this crisis where people said that the internet was going to go down when the when the calendar rolled over to the year 2000 and our supply chain was going to break and everybody needed to store food. And they published lists on the internet for people. And a lot of the times people bought everything on the list and it was hundreds of pounds of whole wheat and hundreds of pounds of beans and then when the crisis didn't happen it was averted because people got on it right away and fixed the problem when the crisis was averted people just threw away those thousands of pounds of rice and beans that they had stored because it wasn't food that they normally ate as a family and they didn't know what to do with it so don't do that make sure that if you're trying to store enough food for a year that you use the food that you actually eat as a family. Don't bother storing rice and beans if you don't eat rice and beans. And definitely don't store food that you know someone in your family is allergic to. The other thing about that is you don't want to store things like peanut butter for long-term storage because any oils might go rancid. So you want to go easy on oils and just store what you might use for, say, three months or store a kind that will last a year like lard or tallow or ghee, which doesn't go bad in a year. What I like doing for things like peanut butter and stuff that I know we'll use up on a regular basis is I buy one or two jars more than I need when I do a stocking up trip. And then I just cycle through those jars. And when I get to the very last one, the next stocking up trip after that one is when I buy more. So usually I'll use up the peanut butter within six to eight months. And I've never had an issue with the peanut butter going rancid. That's good. That's good. Uh, people that will stock up on things like cooking oil will often find that they'll lose a bottle in the back of the cupboard and it will have been rancid. And that's a, a waste of money, um, a waste of your time, a waste of your investment. So it's much better to uh, only store those in amounts that you know you'll use up before they go bad. I usually buy enough olive oil for a year, though. Two of those big jars from Costco are enough for a year and to do some salves and herbal remedy making with too. Right. Olive oil has a good long shelf life, at least a year. Um, there's some other ones like the nut oils. They don't have a good shelf life, uh, except for sesame. Sesame seed has a good shelf life as well. Some of those, they're rancid before you get them. That's right. So that's why I say to go cautiously with oils. But as far as dry goods, you should be able to get a couple of years out of dry goods especially if they're stored in mylar bags with oxygen absorbers. Okay, shall we move on to our third set of questions? Right, let's do it. Let's talk about food preservation methods now that we've talked about food preservation in general. Starting with fermentation. Sarah, could you answer this one? How does fermentation work as a food preservation method? Well, it's one of our oldest preservation methods that the human race has used. You may be familiar with things like sauerkraut, wine, beer, sourdough bread. So basically with fermentation, the good bacteria consumes sugars and some of the other elements in the food that you're preserving, and it prevents the bad bacteria from multiplying. Now with something like sauerkraut, how it happens is the bacteria actually produces a compound called lactic acid. And the lactic acid creates an acidic environment, and that is what prevents the other bacteria from proliferating. And once fermented with lactic acid fermentation, or in the case of like wine and beer, that's a yeast fermentation, 
and the yeast produces alcohol that prevents the bad bacteria from proliferating. Uh, food should be kept in a cool place once it's fermented using cold storage like a root cellar or your refrigerator. And fermented food like sauerkraut, kosher dill pickles will last for up to two years. Or longer. Or longer. And it will actually stay crisp and crunchy for up to two years. Yeah, fermentation is like miraculous to me. When the first few times I did fermenting to find, you know, you open the jar of pickles, it's been sitting in the fridge for two years and they still crunch and they still taste wonderful. Fermentation is just amazing. And the jar is not sealed. And it also wasn't canned. And it wasn't canned. It's just sitting there and it has all the great probiotics in it. Um, And yeah, fermentation is amazing. And for the longest storage, that two-year marker, that is with it refrigerated. So it prevents all temperature fluctuations and it's being kept quite cold. There are actually people that have little fridges in their house that are specifically for storing things like kimchi or sauerkraut because in their culture, it's something that the family eats every day. And so mama will make a a huge batch of, say, kimchi and put it in the fridge and then they'll eat that over a couple of months. Uh, So there are cultures that do that as a regular a regular thing. So Chris, if someone is storing their fermented food in cold storage, not in the refrigerator, how long can they expect it to last if they don't do anything with it? So first of all, it's got a cover. Um, So it's in a jar, it's got a cover to keep out insects and dust. In that case, it should last for anywhere from one month to six months, depending on how sanitary the original fermentation was. So if you're fermenting in a crock and you had a little bit of mold in the crock, that can still be scraped off, tossed out. The mold will not go down into the salted brine. Um, So it's still safe even if there's some mold on top. You just want to scrape it off, maybe put it in a fresh, clean container. But in that case, it's going to shorten the shelf life. And so you just want to pay attention to that. I would say, though, if you're fermenting and you're putting it in cold storage, after six months, you know, the end of the winter, you're going to want to replace your stock. Just eat eat that food and then get ready to put in some fresh food. Talking about cold storage, the food that's in cold storage, like I'm thinking about things like potatoes and carrots and beets and apples, um, each one of those has a different shelf life depending on the life of the plant itself. So potatoes will start to form eyes after six months in cold storage. And you can mitigate that a little bit by making sure that they're stored in the dark and that they're stored in a, at a stable temperature. And far away from apples. And far away from apples because the ethylene gas that apples give off will actually speed up that ripening of the potatoes and cause them to form eyes sooner. Things like apples depends on the apple variety. We've had apples last till January, but those are golden delicious. They seem to be our longest lasting or or um, northern spy apples have a long shelf life. But if you put something like a Macintosh in cold storage, you're going to want to eat that within a month or two. And pumpkins and squash can last for eight months in cold storage winter squash yep winter squash yeah we've had some giant zucchinis that have lasted till january and february too though they they lose quality in storage though they end up quite watery on the inside i i think by january zucchinis that have been kept are fit for only chickens 
So Sarah, you are very into dehydrating right now. I know your dehydrator has been going almost constantly this summer. What do you do with the food once it's dry and you've stored it? Like how, how do you cook it or put it into meals? Well, I try to dehydrate stuff that I know I can use as ingredients. So an example of that is I'll dehydrate tomatoes, mushrooms, leafy greens, and sometimes things like sweet potato and carrots. And then I'll powder them all up and mix them together to make a sauce thickener, powdered mix, that I will use to thicken up pasta sauce, curry sauce, bone broth, basically anything that I think is going to be a little bit too watery to serve to the baby easily. I will add some of that powder, usually up to a quarter cup of the mixed powder, to help thicken up the sauce and to help add nutrition in ways that, well, the baby can't pick out. And then things like apples, strawberries, other fruits, etc. We eat them dry. However, you can also rehydrate them in boiling water or in a syrup solution if you want to use the fruit for making a dessert or a crumble or something like that. And most dehydrated goods, if you rehydrate them with hot water or in a syrup solution, if you're working with fruit instead of a vegetable, you can use it almost as if it were fresh. It will have a slightly different texture, slightly more leathery, but it can be used similar to fresh. And then if I don't feel like powdering up the zucchini or whatever, I will also just throw it in dehydrated into soups or stews and just let it slow cook with the rest of the food. And usually it's hard to tell it's even there. That's the same thing that I do. I don't usually powder, although I used your trick. Um, you were talking on one of our episodes about taking mushrooms and drying them and powdering them and then using the powder to thicken soup. Well, I did that the other day with um, a stroganoff. I threw in mushroom powder because I had no fresh mushrooms and I added some uh, yogurt and it was fantastic. You wouldn't know that I had used mushroom powder. Instead really of mushroom good. soup for the stroganoff. Yeah, it was really good. I'm definitely going to do that again. That was a great idea that you had. Um, I think that as we switch into fall, people tend to want to make more soup than salad as well. And so there's just an automatic seasonal change where people are looking for warm things to keep warm. And I think that dried food is great for that. And one other thing about the powdering is I powder the vegetables or mushrooms, etc., when I don't like the texture of them reconstituted. So powdering them, I don't have to worry about the texture issues and I can still get the nutrition of what I've preserved versus if I just like crumbled dried kale into my soup, I would be slightly overwhelmed by hydrated slimy kale pieces in the soup. So I powder it and then, okay, I have a slightly green tinge soup, but I don't have big slimy kale pieces. Note to self, do not put dried kale in the soup you're going to serve to Sarah. <laughs> it's just a texture thing. Other families may have other things that they don't like the texture of, like maybe they don't like the texture of reconstituted dried tomatoes. Uh, one of the things that I do with the dried food that I started doing uh, during the lockdowns was I, I make a thermos and I put some dehydrated chicken or hamburger and a little bit of dried vegetables and some dried onions, dried celery. And I pour in, fill up the container with boiled water and put the lid on. And then a few hours later, open it up and lunch is ready. And it's a hot lunch and it didn't take any extra effort. And it tastes good. If you are ready 
to start on your herbal journey to get to know herbs and make your own medicine, I've got the perfect next step for you. My membership, the DIY Herb of the Month Club, will help you get to know your herbal allies by studying one herb at a time. And we make a game of it. You will go on a 30-day journey with an assignment to do every day that will only take you 10 or 15 minutes. You'll go on a monthly quest to build your confidence so that you can learn to rely on your herbal allies. You'll invest just 5 to 15 minutes a day of hands-on guided exercises to gain knowledge of each month's herbal ally. You'll also learn how to grow, forage, or find each month's herb. You'll study the historical context of the medicinal and or culinary uses of each herb. You'll create a personal Materia Medica for long-term reference. You'll also study the modern scientific studies and evaluate their methodology and conclusions. And you'll engage your senses both logically and intuitively to get to know each herb really, really well so that you can use it confidently. So stir up some recipes with me and start using your new herbal allies for focused hands-on learning inside the DIY Herb of the Month Club. So I hope you'll decide to join me. The link is in the show notes. So Chris, how would someone combine seasonal eating with their food preservation? Well, that's easy. You just preserve what's in season. So what's in season, what you have an abundance of. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So for instance, right now, I'm working through 80 pounds of peaches. Peaches are in season, but the season for peaches around here in Canada is only about two weeks. So if you don't get peaches when they're in season, you're not going to get peaches. Like they don't even sell frozen peaches, I don't think. I've Oh, they do? Usually in other fruit blends. Uh, you can't just buy frozen peaches. You can sometimes buy canned peaches, but you know what? I don't like canned peaches. So I freeze dry peaches. I dehydrate peaches. I make peach salsa. I make peach uh, chutney. I make peach jam. And then we can have peaches all year round, but it's still seasonal eating because I took them at the peak of ripeness, and I preserved them at the peak of ripeness. So it is still seasonal eating, even if you're eating peaches in January, because you preserve them. And you're not requiring that fresh peaches get shipped in from some other country so that you have fresh peaches in January. Instead, you have your fresh peaches from, well, it's almost September here, so August, September, in your own area that you've preserved and can enjoy in January. Okay, hold on a minute. Are you telling me that they actually have peaches in the store in January? I have encountered some very, very, very unpleasant peaches in January. Yes. Unreal. They're usually mealy, badly bruised, not sweet, and look sort of the worst for wear. One of the advantages of preserving food in season and saving it is you you have no idea what other people are eating because you're not even looking for it. I I have never seen peaches, fresh peaches, in the grocery store. But that just seems so weird to me. I was surprised it showed up at the food reclaim, too. Wow, that's amazing. Is is that even worth trying to dry for the food reclaim? Because they would taste pretty bad. Depending on how many there were, sometimes there were only a few, so they just ended up in the daily fruit salad. Ah. But also when you're working with seasonal eating and preserving food for seasonal eating... 
is make sure you're also eating the food that's fresh from your garden or farmer's market. Not everything needs to be preserved. So if you enjoy munching on grape tomatoes, then munch on all the grape tomatoes you want when they're in season. Absolutely. I actually just planted two cherry tomato plants in my arrow garden, so I'm going to have fresh tomatoes most likely in December. Ooh. And that's still seasonal eating. I'm just changing my season. If you grow it yourself, and it's, yep, that's definitely seasonal eating. The other thing I wanted to say is that eating in season also supports what your body is doing. Because in winter, you're cold, you need to stay warmer. And so you're going to eat soups and stews and things that tend to stay with you longer and generate heat for your body. Whereas in summer, you're eating lighter because your your body is naturally hot in the hotness of summer. And you don't want that thermogenesis happening in your body because then you'll be really hot. When we naturally eat seasonally, we're also doing what's best for our health. In winter, things like root vegetables are generally high in sugars. Cabbages actually have quite a bit of sugar. Um, cabbages, root vegetables, and uh, herbs and spices are what's normally in season in winter. And that can really help for our health to eat that way. Also, those plants are high in vitamin C, whereas in winter we tend to need more vitamin C. We don't get enough vitamin C to fight off colds and flu and that kind of thing. <laughs> So we've been talking today about gardening, food preservation, and food preservation methods, and what works, what might not work so well, and answering your questions about these things. In the next episode, we're going to be talking about a rule of three that applies to making herbal remedies, early, often, and after. So before we leave you, though, we have one thing we want you to actually do. We want you to sit down and make that two-week menu plan that we talked about and make sure that when you're making it, you include seasonal food and then use it as a starting point for whatever is comfortable for you to do long-term food storage, whether that's a month, three months, six months, or even a year. So all of it, no matter how long you want to store food, starts with that two-week food plan. So we'd like you to do that as your positive action for this episode. Thank you, Sarah, for joining me today. Thank you, listeners, for listening in. We'd love it if you would share this episode with your friends who you think would be helped by it. And as always, like, share, and subscribe. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye.